So uh, let me introduce Valerie Huber. She was the special representative for global women's health during the Trump administration in the US promoting global health to empower women to thrive and achieve optimal health outcomes beginning at conception and through every stage of life. And this work culminated in, on October the 22nd, 2020, with the signing of the Geneva Consensus Declaration, where 35 nations came together to commit themselves to protect life, to protect women's health, the family, and the right of a country, most importantly, to be able to make their own laws on these issues without being coerced by others. And uh, Valerie then co-founded two nonprofit organizations, Reach and Ascend, and she launched a professional credential for sexual risk avoidance to empower young people to make healthy decisions and relationships, to build personal responsibility, to treat others with respect, and to avoid risky behaviors. Currently, she is president of the, the newly launched Institute for Women's Health, which I'm sure she'll tell us a little bit about, which promotes the highest attainable health and well-being for women. And she's also president of Artifacts Strategic Advisors, which helps organizations maximize their impact. So Valerie, you're most welcome here on ICMDA webinars, and we really look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Saunders. It's such a pleasure to be here today. And I am very excited about talking about uh, women's health. Well, you know, a lot of people talk about promoting women's health globally. But I thought that this uh, particular image was really helpful because often these women are faceless, either because uh, women's health is not particularly prioritized uh, in, a, in a given country or area of the world, or because the needs just aren't being met. I served as the special representative for global women's health at the US Department of Health and Human Services. And I learned an awful lot by talking to other countries and, and talking also to those who are working in other countries. And I learned something that you already know, and that is that an awful lot of the health conditions and maladies facing women around the world are totally preventable. The fact of the matter is too many women are suffering uh, from these preventable health conditions for a number of reasons, many of which you are already very familiar with and you are personally addressing. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these, uh, these, these first reasons, um, but for those who are not working internationally, it does help to just review some of some of that. The, one of the first things that make it difficult for women is just that they don't have the access to healthcare that is needed and, and improving that access is really important. Sometimes it's a lack of access simply because of distance. They live in remote rural uh, areas. Sometimes it's because of discrimination or rejection because of the health condition or disease that they suffer. Sometimes it's simply because they're women. Uh, at times it's because of a lack of specialized care to, to be able to meet those specific needs. Many of you on today's call are meeting those needs and, and um, providing that, that care and those services where otherwise it may be unavailable. As you know, some clinics, especially in the developing world, lack clean water, reliable energy. And, and when there isn't reliable electricity and clean water, we know that the quality of care is, is compromised. We also know that disease can spread when sanitary conditions aren't, aren't there in the clinics or in the home or wherever uh, that, that particular person is living. We also recognize that curable conditions, treatable conditions 
uh, can't be cured or treated if, if there aren't adequate medicines. These are all things that you already know uh, and, and many of you are, are meeting those needs in the areas that you're serving. And then finally, uh, another thing that is ubiquitous is that there is a need for trained medical professionals. According to the best research that we know that there is a, a shortage of about 15 million health workers around the world. The threshold for meeting a need uh, typically is thought to be about 23 healthcare professionals for every 10,000 people. Well, at least 88 countries fail to meet that threshold and that deficit is expected to increase. But again, many of you are helping to meet that challenge. But there are other reasons that women's health is not being addressed in ways that it could be. And I'd like for us to look just for a moment at, at these two maps. The greatest health needs are concentrated mostly in the global south. And if you look at the map on the left, and I just chose two specific things uh, that we could look at. But if you were to look at a number of the measures for, for health and, and thriving around the world, you would see similar maps. The one on the left is life expectancy and the lighter the color, uh, the lower the life expectancy is beginning at about 50 years of age going up to the darkest color, which is uh, more than 85 years. Then if you turn your attention to the right, uh, this particular map is looking at maternal mortality. And, and here, the, the lighter uh, colors uh, have lower maternal mortality ratios and, and the darker colors have more. Now, while this is not the most recent data, um, it's from 2015, it's the most recent data that we could find that was across the world. As you know, uh, data collection is neither uniform nor very accurate and, and all, often is not consistent from country to country. So we suspect that, that neither of these maps are totally accurate, but it's the best information we have. The problem is too often assistance, either by international organizations, international um, coalitions or countries themselves often have strings attached. Uh, and these strings too often hurt rather than help those that they're supposed to be helping. And uh, of course, we, we don't have all of the international organizations represented uh, on this slide, but the most prominent ones are here. And while we don't have time during this particular seminar to go into all of the um, illustrations or examples of those strings, I am going to talk about just a couple. But first, let's look at this map again. <clears throat> and again, looking at those countries where in the previous slide we saw uh, the greatest maternal mortality and the lowest uh, life expectancies. And what I'd like to, for you to do is in your mind, superimpose those uh, maps with these that you see. And when I talk about conditions being placed on countries in exchange for healthcare, particularly for women, we're talking about a pressure uh, that, that fit two particular issues most, most often. The pressure is for these countries to change their laws on life and family and to uh, and in tandem with that, in addition to that or separate from that to accept unreasonable conditions to assistance. For example, if you look on the left, you can look at the countries that recognize same-sex marriage and those that are uh, gray do not accept uh, same-sex marriage. If you look on the right, uh, these are countries that have uh, restrictions to abortion. Uh, the darker color has the most restrictions. Uh, the 
the bright red is to save the woman's life and uh, the yellow in addition is to, to preserve the health of the, of the women. So if you consider those that protect life and some of these countries, many of them in fact, uh, actually have written in their constitutions that life begins at conception or, or something like that in their constitutions. So this is more than just a, a public policy uh, issue for them. This is really a, a part of how they define the priorities of their countries. So those countries that are in the most need for healthcare, particularly for women, also have traditional values surrounding the family and strong policies and values regarding the, the protection of life. So let me provide just one example, and there are many, but we just don't have the time to, to talk about all of the illustrations. One UN agency, UNFPA, which provides family planning around the world, um, is very involved in this whole discussion and, and service provision for women's health around the world as well. They have created um, a country profile for all of the countries of the world. And, and the one that I'm illustrating uh, here on this slide is for Burundi. And so when they um, are defining what countries have adequate health care. Um, and provide for uh, women's health, they have different things that are within that metric. And one of them is access to abortion. And so it looks at their abortion laws and if they have uh, restrictive abortion laws, then they will get automatically a much lower score. Well, why does that matter? Well, it does for a couple of reasons. For, for one, um, these sorts of country profiles, in addition to providing subtle and often not so subtle pressure, also are attached by UNFPA and organizations like the World Health Organization, where they are grading these countries um, according to how liberal they are moving toward abortion. And there is pressure applied. In addition to that, uh, you can't see it in, in this small screenshot, but the definition of, of health and well-being for women points to a document that was approved by all, all the member states uh, within the United Nations. But interestingly, UNFPA supersedes what the countries defined as including uh, health for women, which Interestingly enough, the country said did not include an international right to abortion. Completely ignoring that, UNFPA is including abortion as if it were a human right. And so they're really doing two things wrong. One is they're doing something they say they aren't doing. And that is they are, are grading countries according to abortion and either subtly or not so subtly, um, de depending upon what programs we're talking about, UNFPA is actually promoting abortion. Secondly, they are taking a document where countries were very clear that the metrics should actually discourage abortion rather than encourage abortion. They are ignoring that. And in fact, not only ignoring it, but writing their own metrics that completely ignore and go contrary to what the, what the member states agreed to. And, and this really brings up something that is of great concern because UNFPA is not the only uh, UN agency that does this. And this is not the only example from UNFPA where countries from around the world negotiate in good faith at the United Nation and in other international settings they bring their, their own priorities and their own cultural realities into those discussions. And before they are willing to say, we will agree to this resolution, they, they work very hard to make sure that new human rights are not created or inaccurately declared, such as 
a right to abortion. In addition to that, they're very careful that their countries are not forced through, through uh, approving a certain resolution to change their laws or their policies on things that are core to who they are as a country. For example, if you were to look at this, um, this sheet again for Burundi, you'd notice that another metric is whether or not the country provides contracept um, comprehensive sexuality education, which according to UN definitions and documents is very explicit, begins very early, and promotes radical agendas throughout the, the age categories for comprehensive sexuality education. This is a, a point where countries um, have diversity of thought um, from very, very liberal countries to very conservative countries. And so this is really uh, an affront to the national sovereignty of countries when a UN agency takes a resolution that was carefully crafted by the countries, ignores that uh, discussion and negotiation that went on before its adoption, then takes that resolution and infuses their own agendas into it, completely ignoring what the countries wanted to see. And this is only one example. It really gets down to what I would call the freedom of belief of nations. There are core values that are fundamental to how a country defines itself. And so when we're talking about the definition of family and the protection of life, I had country upon country tell me, this isn't merely a, a disagreement over policies. When UN agencies or other countries pressure and force uh, aid dependent countries to either change their laws, ignore them, or that there are conditions placed on this funding, they feel not only that they are being disrespected, it's an affront to who they are as a country, and it simply cannot be dismissed as just a disagreement. I think the question really that comes to the fore is, can governments hold different values and beliefs on these issues and still be able to receive necessary healthcare? Well, I think the answer is yes, and I think many of you would agree to that. And the more stories I heard where either UN agencies, coalitions of countries, or individual progressive nations were forcing and pressuring countries to make a decision that was a, a, a win-lose or a lose-lose. For example, a, a country could say yes, we desperately, our people desperately need this assistance to provide minimal health care for our people. And that's a good thing to say yes for that. But then in saying yes, we are also have to, having to say yes to not only controversial um, agendas, but ones that run contrary to our core values. On the other hand, the country can say, no, we're going to stand for our core values and we're going to say no to this assistance. Again, it's a very difficult decision because they know how desperately their people need that healthcare assistance. So you can see that, that leaders are put in very, very difficult situations over and over again. And it was based on that, that we realized that while many countries for years have courageously stood for these values of life and family, and they have, um, they have really had a target on their back as a result of that, and they know that. And in increasing intimidation has come their way, but regardless, they have been willing to stand. And they would continue to stand. But we knew that if we could create a, a coalition of nations that were like-minded in these particular values, even if they disagreed in many other values uh, and, and other policy positions on these particular values they agreed, that coalition could not only help further the health for women, but also defend their rights 
to protect life and family. And that was the genesis of the Geneva Consensus Declaration that Dr. Saunders mentioned just a few moments ago. What was really unique about this particular declaration was that nations came together and they said, yes, we agree to the provisions and the pillars within this declaration, but greater than that, upon this, we commit to work together. And so in the signing of this declaration on October 22nd, 2020, it, it was much more than just signing a declaration. It was the creation of a never before historic coalition. And so what are those pillars? I've hinted at them a little bit, but let me talk about them a little bit more. The first and the context really is women's health. The Geneva Consensus Declaration is the means of providing and promoting genuine health gains for women around the world. And so that was the first and overarching pillar for the GCD or the Geneva Consensus Declaration. The second is the family. We recognize that supporting the family is foundational to society and it's foundational to the preservation of every healthy society. The third pillar is life. And, and this is reaffirming that there is no international right to abortion. There are both UN agencies, countries, and NGOs around the world that would try to say that there is an international right to abortion, but it's not true. There is an international right to life, but not to abortion. And then the final pillar really surrounds sovereignty. And, and I would say that this pillar, while women's health is the context for the Geneva Consensus Declaration, it is sovereignty that protects each of those pillars. And, and the reason that we included this pillar is because it's up to the country to and its people to set the laws to protect life and to define the family. It's not up to international organizations. It's not up to other countries to pressure them um, in, in ways that are contrary to their core values. And protecting the sovereign rights of countries to do that actually protects both um, the family and life, but in its context, it also provides then the context to be able to provide and improve women's health. And, and really all of these pillars are connected. Women provide most healthcare for their, their families, ensuring that they're healthy. Uh, the family obviously is the context for protecting the family members and for caring for the, the health and well-being of each family member more than any other entity outside of that family unit. But it also provides um, that, that important place for, for safety um, within society and for society. And of course, life is the most foundational, foundational of every other right, um, but also not just before birth, uh, but through every stage of life. And then of course, as I mentioned a, a moment ago, sovereignty um, communicates that it's the responsibility of the people of the nation to decide what the policies for their country should be on, on protecting life and protecting the family and should not be dictated outside of, uh, outside of that country. So as Dr. Saunders said in 2020, uh, by the conclusion of that year, 35 nations had signed the Geneva Consensus Declaration. This represented every single region of the world, incredibly diverse. And granted, some of the countries that signed uh, don't get along very well. In fact, some of them are fiercely uh, in disagreement on, on certain, certain other policies. But on these core principles of the Geneva Consensus Declaration, they said, we agree and we will work together. In January, 2021, we had a, a change in administration here in the United States. 
And on day one, President Biden removed all evidence of the Geneva Consensus Declaration from US government websites. And then on day eight, he issued a, a, a presidential memorandum where he mentioned two things that are, are important to where we are today. The first was the decision of his administration to remove the United States from this coalition. And secondly, to say state that the administration has a policy where sexual and reproductive health and rights will be a priority both in the United States and globally. And if you're not familiar with the term sexual and reproductive health and rights, that includes policies that are harmful to the family and that promote abortion and also that <clears throat> promote policies that promote abortion <clears throat> as an international human right. <clears throat> What's significant about this is that <clears throat> while the United States removed its name from the coalition, the coalition didn't go away. While this coalition was created with the full support of the Trump administration, this coalition supersedes any administration. It supersedes really any of the countries who are members currently of that coalition. It is centered solely around the pillars to which countries have agreed. I'm happy to say that despite the fact that the United States removed its name, as of October 2021, the, the first anniversary, of the Geneva Consensus Declaration, there are now 36 nations who are members, again, representing every region of the world, incredibly diverse, different religions, different geopolitical realities. And here are the representatives uh, who were present for the first commemoration of the Geneva Consensus Declaration just a few short days ago on October 28th uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, within the U.S. Capitol complex. We had about uh, 12 or 15 members of Congress stop by and say, though the United States has officially removed its name from this declaration. There are many US government leaders in US Congress who are applauding this declaration and your coalition and we urge you to stay strong and we urge you to grow and we will support you every step of the way. Two, the two countries that joined in 2021, um, the Russian Federation, who became the 35th nation, and the Republic of Guatemala, which became the 36th member, uh, just a few short days before the first year commemoration. And these two pictures were taken in Guatemala City, where I was honored to be able to be present uh, and introduce the president of Guatemala where he made very strong statements uh, saying other countries should not be bullying us just because we have strong pro-life laws. And that's exactly what this coalition is about. It's really also first and foremost about what the Institute for Women's Health is about. I am honored to lead this new organization, Advancing Women's Health Around the World. And we have as our goal that women everywhere can achieve the highest attainable health and well being throughout every stage of life, before birth and after. And we are not, we are not going to be healthcare providers but we wanna come alongside those who do. And we are aiming to change the narrative surrounding women's health. And changing that narrative actually changes what we can accomplish for women around the world. 
Indeed, the current description of what women's health is has been co-opted by those who say and almost uh, unilaterally equate women's health to access to abortion. Women's health should not be co-opted by radical agendas. It should not be co-opted by radical NGOs or progressive nations who are willing to sacrifice the health, well-being, and even lives of women around the world for this agenda. The Institute for Women's Health believes that this debate needs to cool. Those controversial issues need to be set aside and it's up to the countries to decide their policies on that. And together as NGOs, as countries, as UN agencies, uh, and as individual medical professionals, we are then free to provide the help that is needed that we already know how to prevent and to cure and to put aside uh, other issues that would both complicate and derail real health advances. In other words, we need to make the main thing the main thing and put the focus where it ought to be. I would submit that the Geneva Consensus Declaration Coalition if effectively activated can defend both the pillars of the goals, those four goals that I um, mentioned earlier. But what's really needed is that those countries that are part of the coalition need to remain. We need to build the numbers. They need to build in sophistication so that they can protect life and family and also move this debate toward neutral so real healthcare for their women in their countries can be expanded. And there's something you can do too, and that is if you are serving in one of the countries that is signed on to this coalition to say thank you and that you're there to help. I suspect though that you can be helpful in some other ways as well help us understand what the challenges are in your countries. Help us understand the real health needs and what kind of things are complicating or preventing healthcare, particularly for, for women, um, that we could help working with you to clear that path. I think that your vantage point could be extraordinarily helpful. Are there agendas that are currently preventing the necessary health care that could be uh, provided where you are? Are there agendas that are not only preventing the health care itself, but preventing it even from coming in the country because of other agendas attached? And then in addition to protecting the rights of nations to protect life and family, we know that there is an element here that addresses the conscience rights of healthcare providers. And that is the freedom of conscience of those deeply held beliefs and, and convictions, not forcing you to act in ways that are contrary to your um, religious um, or or conscientious objections to certain procedures. For example, if abortion is declared a human, an international human right, then any ability to avoid providing abortions really evaporates because a human right uh, doesn't have a conscientious objection. In addition to that, if sexual, um, expression and gender expression is declared an international human right, then medical professionals um, would have an obligation to provide surgeries. So really the aims of the Geneva Consensus Declaration and this coalition protect not only the nations and their laws and policies themselves, but also the freedom of providers within those countries to act in ways that are consistent with the country's laws protecting life and family. I uh, will just very quickly give one example. The Center for Reproductive Rights is an NGO that is 
that is working in virtually every country of the world. They're also working here in the United States to sue states that have pro-life laws, but they are responsible over the last two decades for the liberalization of abortion laws in 50 to 60 countries around the world. And they are working in countries that are still protecting life to change those laws. But what they said regarding conscience rights is very troubling. Uh, and they are working through the legal systems in countries around the world and through the international courts to take away the conscience rights of doctors and medical professionals in the protection of life. Well, I'd like to thank you for letting me kind of give an overview of what we hope to do working alongside you and others in protecting life, in protecting family, but within that context in promoting and providing more health care, improved life chances and thriving for women around the world. And I'm, I'm happy to turn it over to you, Dr. Saunders. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you very much, Valerie, for an amazing, amazingly comprehensive and enlightening presentation, because I think a lot of people aren't aware of the things that are happening behind the scenes that shape national policy in countries all over the world. And I know a lot of our listeners today are coming from resource poor countries in sub-Saharan Africa or in Asia particularly. So uh, it's, it's been very enlightening. If I could just start off though, Valerie, uh, you've talked a lot about the way that uh, health priorities have been distorted by uh, international organizations with, with an agenda. Well, what, can you tell us just a little bit about what, what are the real priorities for women's health globally, particularly in the, in, in the global South, that you think are being neglected as a result of this um, exclusive focus almost on, on these other issues you talked about? Where does, our, where does our investment and energy really need to be going, do you think? Well, if you look at the, the greatest health needs for, for women around the world and, and in the global south as well, there's, there's, pretty consist, there's quite a bit of consistency that the needs for women are the same as the needs for, for men and for, for children, with, with some exceptions, of course. Um, but having access to, to modern clinics with modern medicines, with um, electricity and, and um, trained healthcare professionals obviously is an overarching need. But as, as I talk to other countries and, and also talk to those who are actually working in country, I found something that was stark and uh, really showed that women's health had been co-opted by the abortion agenda. And that was, um, it, it was explained that in, uh, especially those aid-dependent countries, <clears throat> if you were to go to a clinic that provides contraception and abortion, they were sparkling, they were new, they had all of the modern amenities and they were ubiquitous. However, when you looked at clinics that provided other health needs, it was just the opposite. And in fact, uh, those particular um, needs for a woman who uh, will give birth to be able to do so um, in, in, a, in, a, in a healthy manner, have, have things available in case there's emergency, those things were starkly absent. And so there were examples for women who would have at-home births, have no medical professionals at all uh, around, have no prenatal care, hemorrhage, uh, tried to get to a clinic, and many of them just didn't make it. Uh, and so when we look at maternal mortality rates 
having those overarching um, modern clinics with emergency uh, assistance and all of those other things can have a huge impact just on maternal mortality, but also on non-communicable diseases, even addressing communicable diseases, all of those sorts of things. I think that by focusing only on <clears throat> what progressives like to call reproductive rights, in other words, abortion, those things that are really important to women and important to their lives, livelihood and health are being ignored and dismissed. Yeah, very sobering. And uh, I know a lot of those listening will be working in church and mission related hospitals or other facilities in the global south and and we'll we'll know that the the key priority priorities are all around uh, women's education uh, good antenatal care good obstetric care uh, as, as you say uh, and education about the big killers of in infancy uh, particularly infectious diseases making immunizations available and, and good treatments and and so on so it, it's a tragedy when these things uh, are bypassed We've got a question here from Dr. Emma Haywood, who is a family physician in the UK. And she's asking, is being signed up to the Geneva Consensus going to manage to circumvent some of these restrictions placed on provision of aid, which are applied by the UN and other agencies? Is it going to facilitate investment in women's health? I, I guess that's a question of how going forward, you're going to be able to use this group of countries to be able to shape policy and, and perhaps even exert uh, political pressure uh, of your own? Well, I think that's uh, a really, yeah, <clears throat> that's, a, that's a great question. And there can be a positive answer and a negative answer regarding that. And I'm <clears throat> very optimistic, actually. The fact that uh, so many countries attended the commemoration um, just a few days ago in Washington, DC, and that only the United States has removed its name and yet two other countries have, have joined. I just wonder <clears throat> if countries are seeing that this coalition is more necessary now than ever. And I also believe that this coalition stands the chance of being the most effective vehicle to protect those very, those very um, values and, and pillars that were um, a, a part of the Geneva Consensus Declaration. But there's something else that needs to happen, and that is this coalition needs to be fully activated. The countries just signed October 22nd, 2020. And then a new administration here in the United States took place. The United States transferred leadership of this coalition, um, obviously, uh, we are very pleased that uh, Brazil has taken over the lead on that. But with all these transitions, it, it, it means that certain things have to begin again. And in order for them to continue, uh, it takes a little more, more work. I'm very optimistic, though, that Brazil just last week had a commemoration in Geneva for the Geneva Consensus Declaration. They're talking about having others in, in international locations. That's very optimistic. There are other countries that have already um, made known that they are interested in learning more about joining this coalition. So those are all very hopeful signs, but they're going to be under tremendous pressure by UN agencies, by progressive nations, to step, step outside of that coalition. Uh, there could even be a, a condition put on the aid that they have to remove themselves from that coalition in order to receive aid. I wouldn't put any of those things past them. But what the countries need to know, and those of us who want to protect their sovereign rights around these values need to tell the countries is that removing themselves from the coalition will isolate themselves. And if they think that that will open up new opportunities, it will only increase the pressure. So I think there are great opportunities, but there's a lot of work that still has to be done. Now, you, you talked about uh, strings being attached. Um, you, you gave the example of UNFPA and the way that they uh, classify or grade countries. 
uh, on the basis of their policies, particularly with regard to same-sex marriage and abortion. But you talked about strings being attached as well, and you, you just hinted now about uh, repercussions for, for aid. I know that in the UK here, there's been uh, quite controversial actions by the uh, past uh, British or British governments in the past, which have linked the provision of aid to the implementation of, of uh, laws about same-sex marriage, for example. But can you give us any specific examples of where uh, countries, in a sense, have been threatened uh, about the withdrawal of aid uh, you know, on, on the basis of not signing up to these agendas? Because we don't hear much about it on the news generally, and I'm sure it, it, it goes on, but, but could you give us any specific examples? I'll give you broad examples <clears throat> because uh, the examples that were shared to, with me from other other countries were shared in confidence, and so I don't yeah. want to uh, compromise that. But I I will say that uh, one example in in one country, if they were not willing to either change their policies or stay silent on their policies, it was threatened that. Uh, their diplomats would be recalled to capital in certain certain locations, and that actually happened. Uh, an, another example that was was given to me, and actually th this one I actually uh, saw on the on the floor of the United Nation, where uh, one progressive country uh, who was chairing one of the discussions over the resolution, and this particular country was very strong stating its values regarding the family and life. Before the discussions began that day, uh, the chair of this UN committee who represented a progressive nation came up and threatened that, that diplomat who, who flew from capital to represent their country saying, uh, essentially, they better stay quiet. It was, it was a not at all subtle threat. After that, uh, the, the pressure continued. Um, in, in addition to that, there is currently an international treaty that is coming out of the, the European Union. And it is uh, a treaty that did not include these things previously, but now are including uh, these very issues as a condition for this treaty that could um, circumvent the potentially the the sovereignty of nations if if they agree and if they don't agree it can be very chilling to uh, certain certain aid that is available both uh, these are specifically in Caribbean nations and in African nations so that's happening right now and there are many many other examples you're right it's not in the paper uh, because the countries that are applying this pressure are not going to make it public, and those to whom the pressure is being applied don't want to call additional attention to themselves, which is the very reason that this coalition is essential. Well, in a sense, it's, it sounds like classical bullying behavior, doesn't it, that uh, the abuser exactly uh, threatens the abused, that if they should speak out about it, then things will get worse or privileges might be withdrawn. What, what, why is it, do you think, that there seems to be this almost obsessive focus on these two issues of same-sex marriage and abortion? What, what, what's uh, driving it ideologically and uh, what, what's, what's behind this move that we're seeing in, played out in so many countries? Well, I can't talk to the motivations of all the NGOs in all the countries. Um, it is ideological colonization for sure. Um, myself being a Christian, I have always seen that there's that there is an undue controversy over these issues if you were to only look at them from the natural perspective, but seeing them from the spiritual perspective we, I think, have a, a better understanding of why so much interest is focused on destroying the family and destroying life. 
And I, I, I think there, there is an aha moment, not only to understanding the spiritual motivation, even if those who are, are presenting these as priorities don't understand it as spiritually motivated, we do. And it calls us to then be engaged and involved in the protection of them. So how can Christian doctors and dentists and students uh, get involved? I mean, can people individually sign up to this declaration or is it just, uh, just for nations? Uh, and if not, or if so, what other ways can people get involved to be more aware of what's happening and being able to stand against these trends? Well, I'm really glad that you asked that. Um, <clears throat> Anyone who would like to be involved or engaged, we would encourage them to contact us at the Institute for Women's Health. Um, and beyond that, while individuals and organizations cannot join this coalition, they can be friends of the Geneva Consensus Declaration. There are a couple of things that they can do in order to be that friend. As I mentioned earlier, uh, if you are serving in a country that has joined this coalition, tell them thank you, because they are only or almost only receiving uh, negative feedback if they are our members. In addition to that, uh, keep your ears and eyes on the ground and also help raise the awareness for this. What I mean by ears and eyes, if there are agendas that are, are being implemented um, by NGOs or other countries where and doing things that are illegal, we need to know that. And, and the countries would want to know that as well. And we can, we can help make sure that those countries know that. If, if there's illegal abortion activity taking place and it's a result of US taxpayer dollars prevent, pre, um, providing that, that's illegal. But we won't know. And members of Congress can't hold uh, the US government accountable if we don't have that information. It can be shared. We will to us and we will keep it confidential in terms of who gave that information, but the information itself will be extraordinarily helpful to protecting life and family. They say that the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. So there is just to be eyes and ears because so much of this is swept under the carpet, isn't it? Valerie, you mentioned that there are 37 countries now signed up to this declaration, including some unusual ones, perhaps Russia, uh, Guatemala, Brazil, you mentioned. Can you just give us a little bit, I, I don't want you to read out the 37, but uh, just a kind of international flavor of some examples of countries from different regions of the world who have signed up and are supportive of this initiative. Well, when I said that these were very diverse and they weren't necessarily friends on all issues, I wasn't kidding. So we have, we have countries like uh, United Arab Emirates and Uganda and Sudan and Saudi Arabia, Poland, Paraguay, uh, Belarus, Burkina Faso, Congo, Egypt, Georgia, Haiti, Hungary, Indonesia, Iraq, Kenya, and the list goes on. And, and large countries like Russia and very small countries like Nauru, which uh, you know some of your listeners have never even heard of that country. It only has 10,000 inhabitants. So large and small, they blanket the world and we're very appreciative, but we think that that number could greatly grow above 36. Yeah, it's very diverse. But we've got a question here from uh, Yusuf Ayuba in Nigeria, uh, who's asking, how can we meet the challenge, the financial challenge in having pro-life commitments? So saying that for, in a Nigerian context, Poverty is one of the major driving forces of abortion in Nigeria. They've done a lot trying to support those choosing life for their babies and uh, have a record of saved babies eight in one month through their charity. 
but uh, financial e exhaustion. Is there any way that uh, pro-lifers, perhaps in the West, uh, might collaborate with those attempting to resist changes of law and policy, and, and especially to support women with crisis pregnancies, uh, especially you know from poor backgrounds? Wouldn't it be wonderful if women's health providing um, assistance and, and, and healthcare throughout both pregnancy and, and, and after could be a part of the important priorities. Um, and, and actually, uh, as special representative for global women's health, when I was a, a part of the US government, we were looking at creating things just like that. But there are opportunities for other aid providing countries to catch that vision and, and coalitions of NGOs to catch that vision because there are many, many millions of dollars that are being devoted to destroy those lives. Uh, Alex Wasigi is asking here, is there an interactive platform for friends of the Geneva Consensus Declaration. I, I mean, I, I guess a Facebook group, uh, um, some kind of social media group where, where people of like mind from different countries around the world can get involved and interact, engage with others, uh, talk about ideas. Is that part of your program going forward? Well, it is going forward. I will say the, the very first event that the Institute for Women's Health conducted was this commemoration of the Geneva Consensus Declaration on October 28th. So our website is still under construction, uh, but we do want to include uh, resources that will be helpful to all who care about these issues. In the meantime, I would invite anyone who's interested in being a part moving forward to email us at info at the IWH.org. And we'll make sure that once we create that interactive platform, that you will be uh, some of the, the, the first members of that coalition. So Alex, who just asked that question is from, from Uganda. So again, interest from Sub-Saharan Africa. And we've sadly run out of time, but I just wanted to ask you just finally, as uh, you've landed on your feet, thankfully, after you're uh, working for the, the US government uh, in, into the international, uh, in, into the Institute for Women's Health. And uh, I gather this is gonna be pretty much a full-time thing for you now going forward. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about what your priorities will be over the next six months or so as you get it going? Yes, well, I think the first thing that we want to do is begin to change the narrative surrounding women's health. Because if, if we aren't able to change the narrative, we will not be able to change the policies. Hmm. And right now, there's almost a single message going forward regarding that. The second thing we want to do is be a convener, a convener of NGOs who, who care about uh, the priorities uh, that we've expressed uh, today. And we recognize that there are thought leaders around the world that can help inform not only this narrative, but help us understand how we can clear that path so that better health is actually realized. And we want to learn from you very literally. We're not pretending that we know it all, we don't. But we are. We want to be learners and then actors and acting together. There are other things that are going to be unveiled over the next few months that I can't talk about yet, uh, but we're, we're very excited about the prospect because to our knowledge, there is not another women's health organization that has the same mission and priorities that we do. And so we think it's very important that we take a, a large part of the um, market share of this conversation because we are wanting to promote real health gains 
And I, I suspect that everyone on today's forum wants that same thing. Well, thank you very much. And we wish you all the best as you as you go forward. May you may God give you his wisdom and also his courage and uh, insight as well. So we've been listening to Valerie Huber, who is the president of the Institute for Women's Health, a new organization which is promoting the highest attainable health and well-being for women and uh, on the subject of promoting women's health globally. And it just remains to me to say thank you again to our speaker, Valerie Huber. Thanks so much for your time and wisdom and uh, to all of you for gracing us with your presence today. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon on ICMDA webinars. May God bless you.